Welcome to the Principled Podcast, brought to you by LRN. The Principled Podcast brings together the collective wisdom on ethics, business and compliance, transformative stories of leadership, and inspiring workplace culture. Listen in to discover valuable strategies from our community of business leaders and workplace changemakers. Since 2014, LRN has published an annual Ethics and Compliance Program Effectiveness Report that reflects the input of ethics, compliance, and legal professionals from around the world. These reports aim to identify key differentiators that make some ENC programs more effective than others, especially in the midst of global risks and crises. But the risk landscape has shifted dramatically over the last few years. We've experienced the COVID-19 pandemic, worldwide political upheaval, and the start of the war in Ukraine. How are ENC programs weathering these challenges? What changes have they made to adapt? And what global trends are emerging as a result? Hi, and welcome to another episode of LRN's Principled Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Miner, Vice President of Advisory Services at LRN. Today, I'm joined by my advisory colleague, Susan Divers, who recently led the production of a special Global Standards Edition of our ENC Program Effectiveness Report. We're going to be talking about key findings from the report, which combines LRN data and insights from 2020 to 2023 to deliver a greater global view of ENC program performance. Susan, thanks for coming on the Principled Podcast. It's my pleasure, Emily. I'm always delighted to talk with you. So Susan, we've been doing this report for a number of years under your leadership, and this is the first time we've ever published a special edition. What's special about this Global Standards Report, and why now? Good questions, Emily. Well, you mentioned some of the factors in your intro, in particular that we've just emerged from the pandemic, which if you look at it, That's one of the biggest risk events to occur probably since the mortgage crisis. And so looking at how programs respond to risk is a good way to see if they're actually doing what they're supposed to do. And another major factor that you also mentioned was Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, which has really resulted in a significant increase of focus on trade controls and export controls and sanctions in particular. And the Department of Justice, for example, has hired 25 new prosecutors and created a national security division specifically to oversee compliance in those areas. So that's a risk. And then there's an ongoing state of tension with China that's resulted in more and more restrictions as well. So that's sort of a perfect storm. And as you know, from looking at our program effectiveness data year over year, we see certain results every year. And we sometimes wonder, well, is that really the case? I think we were a bit surprised when programs emerged very strongly from the pandemic. So going back and looking at data that was pre-pandemic, looking at a couple of years during the pandemic, and then looking at last year, which is still, you know, a year of permacrisis, as somebody said, really gives us some insights that we might not otherwise have. Yeah, I have to say it was really fun to 
compile four years worth of data and look to see what trends there were. And I think we had some hypotheses. Some of them were borne out. Some areas surprised us. And it was fun to kind of look at this holistic data set that, that really spanned a number of years. And something that was frankly surprising to me as we dug into the data was the degree of convergence of best practices across countries and regions. So our respondent base, the people that answered the survey that we run every single year, it became increasingly globalized over the four years in question. And I expected to see that play out a bit more in the data. In fact, we even isolated the North America responses across all four years so that we could look at a more apples to apples trend line. But with a few exceptions, we didn't see major differences between North America and the rest of the world. And I think that shows, as we've discussed, that there's a general agreement on the necessary components of an ethics and compliance program. Company policies, code of conduct, training, audit, tone at the top, and other essential elements. So there really are no alternate models of what an ethics and compliance program generally looks like or what it's designed to do. So with that in mind, a more interesting question is then, why do some programs succeed in shaping their organization's ethical culture and others are less impactful? And in looking at that four years of data, we identified five major differentiators between these high impact and less effective ethics and compliance programs. So I'd love it if you could walk us through those differentiators. Sure, I'd be happy to. And again, going back to why we did this report, four years of data is pretty compelling. And what was very gratifying in a way is that the major themes we've identified in the past, which I'm just about to talk about, are really borne out by four years of data. So they really are there. And it wasn't just a fluke. So the first is one that anybody that's familiar with LRN will know about, which is that relying on values to motivate and change employee behavior for the better or inspire employee behavior is much more effective than relying on rules. I was recently speaking at the NAMWOLF conference in Baltimore, and somebody was asking about that. And I said, well, if you really think about it, rules aren't self-executing. I mean, anybody that's ever raised kids knows that rules are not self-executing. But values really are. If you're really motivated by integrity, respect, doing the right thing, it leads you to take action and it leads you to think about your behavior in a way that you might not otherwise. And we have plenty of examples in our recent reports of companies doing just that. So a second one is programs that are highly effective and actually make an impact on their organizations are embedded in the decision-making of that organization. And when I first started in this area many years ago. Usually ENC was sort of off in a corner. It was an area that nobody wanted to be seen visiting because that me might mean that you were under investigation. And it was kind of a once a year training event 
and then everybody stayed away. So that's really changed. What we saw during the pandemic was that organizations really relied on their ENC teams and their values to help guide behavior in very uncharted waters. And then a third is, and this is something that has really emerged, I think, very strongly in our studies, is that programs have become much more employee-facing, accessible, and relevant. And again, in the past, it was sort of, well, okay, let's just push out these one-hour lectures on anti-corruption or sanctions or sexual harassment, and that's that. We've done our bit. And now there's much more of a focus on how do employees get information that's relevant and useful? How do they understand it? How do we know that they understand it? And as you know, at LRN, we're very focused on that. And that that was definitely a feature that emerged strongly from the pandemic. And then we also see that really effective programs innovate in training, design, and delivery. I just gave an example of that, but going to shorter modules, tailoring training to roll, allowing people to test out, and then analyzing through data analytics, such as our system called Reveal, allows people running programs to really see what is impactful and what isn't and where employees might need more help. And then last, we've seen an increasing focus on prioritizing personal responsibility for ENC. And that means rewarding good performance and good ethical conduct and penalizing misbehavior. And so that ties into a company's reward structure, whether it's promotions or bonuses. And then in September, the Department of Justice came out very strongly and said, that is the key theme for this administration, personal responsibility, both in the positive sense and then in the negative sense. So those are really the the main ones that we saw. But as I mentioned, they're really consistent with our research over four years. As I listen to you recap those five key differentiators, there's a few things that that stand out to me, um, you know, kind of being involved in this in this research over those years. And one is, you know, you mentioned how programs are becoming more and more high impact programs are becoming more employee focused and the innovations in training design and delivery and the personalization. And, you know, it really tracks with our expectations for other areas of our life too, right? Like with, you know, personalized ads or fashion, and there's much more of a focus on that individual and meeting you exactly where you are. We have tailored vitamins and drug regimens that are now being offered with illnesses, but this, you know, it it kind of, it's all, it's all coming together and it's, it's encouraging to see ethics and compliance, you know, tapping into that as well, because of course, the more relevant and tailored this information is and their communication, the more resonant it's going to be to me as an individual and the more I'm going to retain. So that was just kind of one parallel that I wanted to observe in our lives in general. And 
the other one, the one that you ended on prioritizing personal responsibility. So I mentioned earlier that we saw in the data um, a real convergence between all of the the countries in question. And, you know, maybe it's worth pausing for a second to to tell the listeners kind of who participates in these surveys that we run every year. And they go out to ethics and compliance and legal professionals. There's some screening questions that we include to make sure that people's, you know, job responsibilities are aligned with the types of questions that we're going to be asking. And in the first year of our data, 2020, I think it was over 90% of our respondents came from North America, so the United States and Canada. And then starting in 2021, we started adding in other geographies to now in 2023. We really have an even mix between North America, Europe, Asia Pacific. And so, you know, there isn't an overrepresentation in one area or another. It's, 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 pretty evenly distributed across 10 plus countries. And so when we were looking into the data across those four years and and kind of slicing and dicing, we thought that we would see more of a difference between maybe North American programs and some of the programs in the other countries that we looked at, but we really didn't see that with a few exceptions. And one of those was this last differentiator that you talked about, prioritizing personal responsibility. This was one of the areas where we did see a difference between the performance of North American programs overall and our global data set, where programs in North America are much more likely to include ethical behavior as a significant factor in things such as performance review, promotion decisions, bonus allocations, et cetera, as opposed to the other countries in our data set. But this gap kind of went away when we isolated just the high-performing programs. And so that's another, I think, really important takeaway that I had in looking at that. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting point that you raise, both points about, you know, we, we live in an age where having things kind of personalized is is definitely a trend or a, a practice. And then in terms of looking at global data, but I think the real driver there, I would say there are two factors why there's really only one kind of model out there really for E&C programs. And that's that multinationals have really sort of focused on compliance and ethics as priorities and a lot of them have operations in the U.S. And in terms of active regulators, there's no question that the U.S. has the most active regulators. And as you know, I started looking at that issue kind of almost by accident. I was checking to see how many prosecutions of non-U.S. companies there had been in the first six months of 2023 in the area of anti-corruption. And I found it was like nine out of 10, if I remember correctly. And so I looked further and over 10 years, nearly half of anti-corruption prosecutions in the U.S. have been of foreign companies, some several times like Ericsson recently. And then I looked even further and I saw that non-U.S. firms account for, again, nine out of 10 of the largest fines paid 
since the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act came into force. So what that means is that whether you're headquartered in Helsinki or uh, Sofia, Bulgaria, or Santiago, Chile, or here in the United States, you have to care because U.S. jurisdiction in this area is very broad. And if you read our report and look at some of those charts, you'll see what I mean. So I think that is a factor that's really driving kind of an international convergence of standards. And a lot of it echoes the Department of Justice guidance on effective ethics and compliance programs. I agree. That was one of those moments where we kind of stopped and said, oh, wow, there's something here when you were looking into that data. And, you know, it's interesting because I feel like I've been in so many conversations with ethics and compliance leaders over the years where the discussion has kind of gone to, oh, well, we're not, you know, we're not based in the U.S. So the DOJ guidance doesn't really apply here. But I think when you started looking into that, it was really eye-opening for me personally to see how it really does apply in so many cases, as you pointed out. And so, you know, with that in mind, how does that shape what programs around the world should be paying attention to and investing in? And I think you're right. The high impact programs, as we've seen in our data, like they're already there, regardless of where they're located. So again, you know, with that convergence around best practices. So I guess how you know, this is maybe a good segue. How should an ethics and compliance leader be thinking about or reading this report? How can it help them in their jobs? Well, I think in some ways it is a peek around the corner because these are trends that have been gathering momentum over four years. So at some point, if you don't pay attention to those trends, you find that your program really isn't at a best practice level anymore. And that's particularly true in this area of rewarding ethical behavior and punishing unethical behavior, because Department of Justice has made clear that that's kind of a fundamental area. And our data shows that high-performing programs are doing better there than low-performing, but there's still a ways to go. So that's one way to look at it. And then a second way to look at it, too, is I think sometimes in the past, there has been an attitude that that ethics and compliance is too U.S.-centric. But again, if you look at the data and you look at what I was just talking about in terms of prosecutions and the way that non-U.S. companies have really been caught by not having robust and effective E&C programs, then I think it's, it's a good perspective if you're running a multinational program or you're located outside the United States. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. So Susan, we are in the planning stages for our 2024 report. We'll be conducting the survey that generates the responses that go into that report later this year. And we're targeting February 2024 for our publication date. Is there anything that you would like to share as a teaser for those listening and hopefully a plug for them to check back in and and participate in the research? Oh, absolutely, Emily. 
And one of the things that's been so interesting for me as a non-data person paired with two absolutely excellent data people, you and Brian, is when you draw correlations. I remember when you did that last year and we realized that companies with boards of directors that are actually trained on ethics and compliance topics outperform in a lot of key ways, a lot of other areas that we look at. So this year, I tried to pay particular attention to what questions can lead to those kinds of correlations. And, you know, whether it's the size of your department or where you're located or whether you're led by a designated CECO, uh, Chief Ethics and Compliance Officer, whether you report to the general counsel or to the CEO. So I've tried to build in a lot more in that area. And then we've asked, I think, some very interesting questions, hopefully, about if you do online training, how do you do it? Do you create it all yourself? Do you have an outside provider like LRN? Or do you sort of purchase it like Skillsoft or LinkedIn? So we're asking some nitty and grittier questions, too, in the training area, which is, of course, our sweet spot. But I think we're going to see some really interesting connections that we can draw, hopefully, from this year's report. So I would urge everyone to kind of keep an eye out for it when it's done. Yeah, I'm really excited to look into some of those correlations that you mentioned. And I think that it ties back to that that personalization that we were talking about earlier. You know, what what is true or, you know, seems to be true for organizations of this makeup versus organizations of, of that makeup? And, you know, is that a good thing? Are there opportunities to improve? Um, does it make sense given proportionality? Um, so I'm excited to to look into that. And we're also going to be continuing to increase our the globalization of our of our study, adding on two new geographic regions, the Nordic region and the Middle East. So it'll be fun to see kind of how that what that adds to the mix. Well, Susan, thank you for joining me on this episode. It's been really great to dig deeper into where ENC programs stand from a global perspective and to reflect on what this four years of combined research tells us. And it makes me even more excited to see what our research on program effectiveness yields next year. Me too, Emily. And it's always a pleasure to talk with you. And it's even more of a pleasure to work with you. Yes, I agree. Well, my name is Emily Miner, and I want to thank you all for listening to the Principal Podcast by LRN. We hope you enjoyed this episode. The Principled Podcast is brought to you by LRN. At LRN, our mission is to inspire principled performance in global organizations by helping them foster winning ethical cultures rooted in sustainable values. Please visit us at LRN.com to learn more. And if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave us a review.